You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. As we continue to meditate on that glorious truth that he is worthy, turning your Bible to John 19, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 11 this morning. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, Joanna, for leading us so faithfully. The Lord uses song significantly to stir our affections for the one that we worship. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 11, but for context, if you would look with me in chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. He's speaking there greater than he knows. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, that is our desire today, is to behold the man. He is the man for us and our salvation. We certainly recognize he is more than a man. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God for us. And we pray that we could recognize that even more today through the preaching of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you are aware of the inordinate attention, the He Gets Us ad campaign uh, has been getting over the last two years. Uh, It really began in 2022, first launched there with the goal, the stated goal, to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible. And the, the group, you might even say groups sponsoring this campaign, plan to spend $1 billion, invest $1 billion in the campaign over the next three years. And though I would say there are noble motives behind that campaign, there are also several reasons to critique that campaign. Perhaps most problematic is that it posits Jesus as a mere example to us and not as our substitute and our Lord and Savior. It also reinforces what the culture wants us to believe about Jesus while leaving out what the culture does not want us to believe about him. This past Sunday's Super Bowl, the campaign ran two ads uh, that cost $20 million. One of those ads was was a still photo ad, which is unusual for a Super Bowl, of of a wide variety of people washing the feet of others. There was no narrative or any kind of captions that accompanied the photo. But at the conclusion of the video, here's what it says. Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. He gets us, all of us. Of course, he did not teach hate. 
He was love incarnate, and certainly serving others is good. In fact, it is the fruit of our salvation. Uh, if, if we don't serve others, you have to question if a person has been united to the supreme servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's certainly true that Jesus gets us. But those truths in and of themselves and by themselves are bad news for us all. For if all that is required of us is to serve like Jesus, we are all condemned. Jesus was the supreme servant and no one can serve like him. If the question for salvation is what would Jesus do, we are all condemned. The law condemns us. We cannot attain to the standard of God as Jesus did. That's why we needed him as our substitute. And yes, Jesus gets us, but if you're a sinner, that's bad news. And we are all sinners. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's why when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which is essentially the motivation behind that ad campaign, um, it actually points to something that the ad campaign did not bring out. Remember, his foot washing took place in the shadows of the cross. His emphasis there, yes, we will serve each other if we love like Christ, as we are united to Christ. But his emphasis in John 13, if you'll remember, is on a cleansing, which only the cross can secure. And that's why Jesus said to Peter in that passage, John 13, verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, if you, receive, if you refuse the sign of what I have come to do, the sign was foot washing, you are also refusing the reality which that sign points. That is, his dying on the cross to wash away our sins. We are sinners in need of a Savior. Believe it or not, that, that took place just hours before our present text. That was many months ago in this church in worship, but it took just hours before this present text. And at this point, Jesus has gone before Annas, the former high priest, and then he was taken to Caiaphas, and he's gone before Caiaphas, and then he, he went before the Sanhedrin, who then passed him on to Pilate, who will then pass him to Herod, which we only read about in Luke's account, who then passes him back to, to Pilate. And that's where we are here. Jesus is in the final trial before Pilate, just a few minutes out from the cross. And the first thing we're going to see is a conversation between the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and Pilate. And what we will see is a misunderstanding of God's Son. Look with me in verse 6. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, 
crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Remarkably, Pontius Pilate is portrayed in a better light than the religious leaders. Now, that's saying something. Keep in mind, we read in Luke 13 that this same Pontius Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galilean worshipers who were offering sacrifices. Remember, this is under the Old Covenant. They were offering sacrifices, which pointed to the one who would come and make the once for all sacrifice for us. They were offering sacrifices in worship to God, and this same Pontius Pilate had come to these innocent people and slaughtered them and then mingled their blood with the animal sacrifice's blood. And this one is being shown in a better light than the religious leaders. This shows you, and this is important for us, that religion without regeneration is a dangerous place to be. Religion without regeneration, a new heart creates rigor mortis of the heart. It hardens you. That's why some of the meanest people in the world are religious people. Religious people who know nothing of the grace, the mercy of God in the substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, their law did call for the stoning of those who had committed blasphemy. We know that from God's law, which means their law was rooted in the law of retribution. And what is the law of retribution? Among things, among other things, retribution means that the crime, that is the penalty of the crime, should be proportionate to the crime itself. And so uh, they were calling for something that was even more heinous than stoning. They could have easily stoned him. They were going to stone Stephen later on, just a, in a few days. But they wanted him crucified. They wanted him nailed on a Roman cross. And the cross um, did not fit their law of retribution. It was the most heinous way to die. Now, taking the Gospels collectively, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, we can essentially say there were seven separate charges aimed at Jesus by these religious leaders. Ultimately, it came down to blasphemy. But we know from Matthew 26, they accused him of threatening to destroy the temple. Now, we know that he did not do that. We saw that in John 2. He said, if you tear down this temple, I will raise it up on the third day, referring to his own resurrection. But they falsely accuse him. Uh, we've already seen in John 18 that they accused him of being an evildoer. In Luke 23, of misleading the nation, of, of forbidding Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. He did not do that. In fact, he affirmed taxes to Caesar. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and what is God, what is God's. Stirring up the people. Luke 23, 5 was another accusation. And making himself king. Of course, behind all these charges, we see here in our passage in verse uh, seven. He 
was being accused of making himself the son of God. In Leviticus 24, 16, the law said, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. And since John 5, 18, when he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath and said he was doing the work of his father and called the Sabbath, he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, they have wanted to put him to death for blasphemy. In verse 8, when Pilate heard this, it says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, what's he afraid of? Well, he already knows they want to put him to death. It's the second part of verse 7 that he is, made him fearful. He made himself the son of God. Remember, Pilate's already been impressed by Jesus. And his wife, and, she, and they were very superstitious people, the pagans and, of, of this day. His wife has already had a dream about this righteous man. That's how she described him. Not to have him put to death. And so he's, he's impressed with him. He's a superstitious pagan. And now he's hearing that this man claims to be divine. He claims to be the son of God. And he knew there was something unique about him. And he has him shaken in his boots. And that makes sense of the question that he asked in verse 9. And now his conversation is going to be geared at Jesus. And this is the last conversation he's going to have with Jesus. So we've seen this misunderstanding about God's son. Here we see there's a misunderstanding of God's authority. And that's the important part of this passage and starting in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Keep in mind, he just heard that he was claiming to be the son of God. And here he asked, where are you from? Now, Pilate has asked Jesus a lot of questions up to this point. In fact, uh, he has asked Jesus five questions, and now this is the sixth question. Perhaps most significantly of those five questions, he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And then he asked him, what is truth? And here he asked, where are you from? But none of these questions were asked by one who recognized he was a sinner. None of these questions were asked by one who recognized that his biggest problem was his own heart and that Jesus was his remedy. Jesus was his hope. Jesus was his savior. None of those questions were asked in faith, in other words. They were asked skeptically. And so he has not stewarded the revelation that Jesus has already given him. Hence, the second part of verse 9. But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, readers of John know the answer. We have seen as early as John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. So we already know he is the Son of Man from heaven. He who comes from above is above all. That is, he's transcendent. Chapter 6, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. 
course, that revelation for those, is for those who have ears to hear, those who have received it by faith. Pilate has not received the revelation that Jesus has given him by faith. And hence, notice, Jesus gave him no answer. That's horrifying to think about. All four gospel accounts speak of Jesus' silence before Pilate. Now, why did he not answer Pilate? Well, he's already answered Pilate. Back in chapter 18, verse 36, after Pilate asked him, what have you done? Jesus responded, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So he's already answered Pilate, but Pilate did not respond in faith to this one who embodied the truth of God. So why would Jesus reveal new truth to Pilate if he has failed to act on the truth that's already been revealed to him? And there are many people like Pilate. They've had the truth revealed. The, the problem is not evidence. The problem is not lack of revelation. They've had the revelation, they've had the truth revealed to them, but they've not acted on it in repentance and faith. And the silence here from Jesus drives home to us that if we continue to resist the revelation that Jesus has already given us, there may come a time when he no longer speaks to us and our hearts are hardened to his revelation. It's a scary place to be. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So Pilate believed that his Authority derived from Rome, from Tiberius, Caesar. Humanly speaking, he was correct. He had been appointed by the Caesar. But keep in mind, as we're going to see in Jesus' response, there are limits to any human government's authority. For example, if Jesus is innocent, and we know that he is, and we know that Pilate knows that he is, then Pilate has no judicial authority to have him put to death. In other words, government is limited. If Jesus is guilty, and we know that he's not, then we recognize as well that Pilate has no judicial authority to release him. Keep in mind this, the first and foremost crucial limit to any government is that no government 
should regard itself as God. But as we have seen in the U.S., when individuals within a government do not worship the true and living God and do not believe and obey his truth as revealed in Scripture, then what happens is they will regard themselves as God or they will see themselves or their government as God. A government that refuses to acknowledge the true and living God of the Bible is a government that will supplant God. That has happened in every civilization. Such governments, by God's common grace, may do justice for a time, but eventually they will become beastly. We're seeing that here in America, where you now have, this is just one of many examples Children being taken away from their parents' homes because their parents refuse to allow their children to undergo transgender surgery. So the government is stepping in and acting as God. When a government does that, it has become beastly. That's why you see in Daniel 7, the four beasts coming out of the sea, who, by the way, the Son of Man will destroy. They have become beasts because they have become, in their estimation, God. We see it in the Old Testament with even Israel's kings. We see it with the pagan nation's kings. We've seen it in the 20th and 21st century with communism and its ilk. And so it is with Tiberius and Pontius Pilate and Rome. That's where things are as Jesus is interacting with this governor of Judea. Verse 11 gives us Jesus' last words to Pilate. Interestingly enough, he gives him a, a lesson in government and civics. An important lesson in government and civics. Verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, nor any other human government, has power over Jesus or anyone else, unless it is given by God. Which means, and we're gonna see this next week, his authority to crucify Jesus is an authority that he receives from God himself. That's hard to hear. But I want you to think about the alternative. This brings us to the issue of the relationship between divine sovereignty, and human culpability. The Bible clearly teaches God is sovereign even over the cross. And the Bible clearly teaches that we are culpable, moral agents. Now, typical of the relationship that the Bible poses between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, 
many of us call this compatibilism, that is, divine sovereignty is compatible with human culpability and responsibility. But given this biblical compatibilism, even the worst evil, and what is the worst evil? The worst evil in the history of the world is what happened at the cross when the only good man was crucified. Even the worst evil cannot escape the boundaries, the outer boundaries of God's sovereignty. And yet God's sovereignty never lessens the responsibility and guilt of the moral agents. If this were not the case, the alternative is unthinkable. And so, if the culprits who nailed Jesus to the cross are given undue attention at the expense of divine sovereignty, then what happens is that the cross becomes an unfortunate accident in history. All right? But if God's sovereignty is given undue emphasis at the expense of moral responsibility, it makes the cross unnecessary. Because they're just doing what they were sovereignly decreed to do. So where is the sin? And so we have to affirm both divine sovereignty so that we make sure we know and understand that the cross was not an accident in history. It was decreed by God, the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. And we affirm human culpability. So we affirm that these were real sinners who deserve judgment. We have to affirm both. Because God's authority was over the whole ordeal. That's what Jesus is telling him. Let me offer you another implication, though admittedly this is not the main point, but I do think it warrants saying, because God is the higher authority than Pilate, because God is a higher authority than any other human government, we as Christians must refuse to obey civil rulers when they call us to disobey God's word. And that's becoming more and more important today to understand. One biblical example of that is in Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, told Peter and the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. And how did they respond? Chapter 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than man. We'll go to jail for it, but we're going to obey God. And let him handle the consequences of our obedience. On this February 18th day, some 375, 390 years ago, the great book Pilgrim's Progress was published on today. Today is the anniversary of that. It was published in 1678. Perhaps outside the Bible, there's been no more impactful Christian book in history. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said he read this book over 100 times in his life. John Bunyan wrote it in prison. He spent 12 years in jail. Why? Because the Church of England told him to stop preaching. He was preaching a Reformation gospel. 
and he wouldn't stop. They put him in jail. And while in jail, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. If he had not, diso- if he had not obeyed God, if he had not disobeyed the civil authorities, we maybe have missed one of the great works in, in church history. But he obeyed God rather than man, recognizing ultimate authority comes from God, not man. Let me offer you a negative example. We saw negative examples during the Jim Crow era. Churches were, were silent. Christian churches were, were silent when our black brethren were mistreated and treated as if they were not image bearers. And the church was often silent in that. And he actually partook in the racism. That was wicked. And they should have repented. Pastors should have stood up and obeyed God rather than man. During the the time of World War II, the Nazi regime called all Germans to withdraw from the Jews and even turn the Jews in. And there were Christians who turned their Jewish friends in in obedience to Hitler and Germany. Well, the trend in America right now appears to be there are some who are trying to pass laws to forbid what they call hate speech. Now, hate speech is a sin, but what they call hate speech is interesting. They are calling for churches to be silent on the moral issues of the day, the issues that directly conflict with the Word of God. And if that comes to that point here in America, we're going to have to have steeled up backs and be willing to stand up and trust God with our obedience. Because ultimate authority comes from God, not from sinful man or sinful government. And Pilate's actions here are clearly sinful. But interestingly enough, not to the degree of the Jewish leaders. Look at the last part of verse 11 as we come to a close in this text. Therefore, he who'd delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's not that Pilate didn't sin, but there is a degree of accountability based on revelation. And these people had the oracles of God. They had the oracles of God. Romans 3, 1 committed to them. They were people of the book. And people who have revelation have greater degree of accountability than those who don't. So it's a dangerous place to live in America where there are Bible preaching churches in every community and Bibles in virtually every home. To whom much is given, much is required. And so though Pilate will be held accountable for his sin and delivering up Jesus, Jesus says there's a greater accountability with these religious leaders. Now, Jesus says, he who delivered me over to you. Who is that? Most specifically, it was Caiaphas, representing the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling authorities. So Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the religious people of the day, they handed Jesus over to Pilate. And Jesus said, there's a greater judgment coming to them. Now, why did they do that? Matthew tells us, Matthew 27, 18 tells us it was out of envy they delivered Jesus up. 
What does that mean? It was out of envy, out of jealousy. Out of envy, they delivered Jesus up. Well, this teaches us an important lesson. These people found their identity in their authority. They found their identity in being the popular religious leaders. And when your identity is in anything but God in Jesus Christ, and it gets threatened, envy will be one of the the fruits of that. In other words, if someone has more of what you find your identity in, you will be envious towards that person. Have you ever struggled with envy? I struggle with envy. Have you ever struggled with jealousy? I've struggled with jealousy. But behind the jealousy, behind the envy is misplaced identity. In other words, idolatry. Functional idolatry. It's important for us to understand it. So when I feel envy, when I feel jealousy, when you feel envy, when you feel jealousy, what are you to do? As a Christian, you come to the, you come to, to the Father in Jesus' name, and you confess that. You ask for forgiveness, and you ask him by the power of the Spirit to transform your puny heart. Because envy can take you places you don't want to go. Look where it's taken the religious leaders. They've, it has taken them to a place of murder, a murderous heart. When you envy someone, you cannot love that person. You will hate that person. You will desire for that person to fail. That's where they are. Of course, Judas had delivered Jesus over to the religious leaders. And we know from the gospel accounts that Judas was motivated not by envy, but by greed, all right? And then Pilate himself, we're gonna see this next week, he delivers them over, Jesus over to the, to the soldiers to be crucified. Well, Pilate is not motivated by greed per se. He's not motivated by envy. He's motivated by the fear of man. So there was all kinds of sins behind the delivering up of Jesus. You can trace them all back to the sin of inordinate self-love. When, when self is enthroned, when self is God, and that indicts us all. That indicts us all. Indeed, Jesus ultimately was delivered over because of our sin. So in a very real sense, it wasn't just Judas, it wasn't just Pilate, it wasn't just the religious leaders, it was all of us who delivered Jesus over. As Acts chapter 4, verse 27 says, they, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and peoples of Israel. As the old spiritual asked, were you there when they crucified our Lord? And we must answer, yes, we were there, but not as spectators, but as participants. After all, why did Jesus ultimately bear the cross? Not because of Judas, not because of Pilate, not because of Caiaphas, but because of our sin.
John Stott says this in his book, The Cross of Christ, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. But look at it this way. On the human level, at the human level, Judas gave Jesus up to the Jewish leaders who then gave him up to to Pilate, who then gave him up to Herod, who then gave him up to Pilate, who then gave him up to the soldiers to be crucified. But there's also a divine level. Remember, God is sovereign, man is responsible. Here's the divine level. The Father gave him up. And Jesus gave himself up. No one takes my life from me is what he has said in John. So why did the Son of God take on human flesh? Here's why the Son of God took on human flesh. He gets us, and his assessment is not good. He recognizes we are sinners deserving judgment. In fact, it's because he gets us that he took on human flesh. It's been said, if you have trusted in Jesus, even though he was silent at his own defense, he will not be silent at yours. Amen? That's a good word. He will not be silent at ours. Because if he was, we'd all be doomed. But he won't be silent. And he will stand and say, paid in full. That's why a better ad campaign is not just that he gets us. But as one I saw released this week on Twitter, he saves us. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.